0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. I invite you to scroll through my catalog of more than 140 awesome interviews on any podcast app or at the website, aarecoveryinterviews.com. Every episode is unique, inspiring, engaging, and meaningful. Each story is a powerful testimony of the recovery available to all in Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is an encore episode of my interview with Roe Y. from March 2022. Roe got sober in April, 1982. Jails, Institution, or Death. These three bleak outcomes from alcoholism and drug addiction faced my guest on today's show, Roe Y. Actually, he fulfilled the first two in his late teens and early 20s, after being incarcerated multiple times and being court-ordered into treatment facilities. The third option was not far behind, as Roe's increasing use of alcohol and drugs pointed solely toward a permanent, if not welcome, solution to his misery. His introduction to AA happened in the prison meetings he attended, for no other purpose than to attain a less severe period behind bars. Upon release from every jailing, he ignored anything he'd heard in AA and returned to a life of drug use, alcoholism, and crime. Rose downhill slide accelerated with each felony conviction for buying and selling drugs. Prison sentences, parole violations, and failed attempts to stop drinking and using dogged his every move until spring 1982 when he finally hit his bottom and entered AA with an earnestness born out of his desperation roe finally began the tough work required in the twelve steps of alcoholics anonymous working his way out of the debris field of his life roe trudged the road of happy destiny one day at a time That journey took him from sweeping floors as an ex-con to owning his own business for over thirty years, building and racing cars and boats, while setting world speed records in the process. He has never forgotten where he came from, nor taken for granted God's gifts of sobriety. Living a rich and fulfilling life, Roe lives in the center of the AA herd. With forty years of sobriety, he still attends a daily meeting and can be seen talking to newcomers and old-timers alike offering his special folksy brand of support and friendship. His AA story is simply remarkable, yet told in very humble terms. I'm grateful for the friendship I've enjoyed with Roe for the past 30 years, and I believe you'll find today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews to be especially engaging and meaningful. So, set your phone to Do Not Disturb for the next hour and 15 minutes as you enjoy my conversation with one of my favorite AA kinfolk, Roe Y.
1: My name is Roe, and I'm an alcoholic.
0: Hi, Roe. Thanks for being here today, and thanks for participating on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Thank you. You and I have known each other a really long time 30 some years, probably. Yeah. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and we've known each other over the years through thick and thin. We've gotten to know each other's lives, mostly from hearing each other share in meetings. True. Because we don't necessarily hang around a lot outside of meetings, but. You go to enough meetings with people over the years you do get to know them sooner or later. You got a birthday coming up here real soon, don't yeah, you? Yeah,
1: April seventh.
0: Yeah. How many years is that going to be? Forty years. Forty years. Yeah. Forty wonderful years. Forty wonderful years. Were they yeah. always wonderful?
1: No. But in comparison? Yeah. They are. Yeah. In comparison to my past, they are all wonderful
0: years you have to go back a pretty long way though to get to the years that weren't so wonderful oh god no doubt yeah
1: but i mean still they they weren't still it weren't as bad as my using years i mean i came i came to aa or i I got sober i went to na first Mm -hmm. but i came right out of there right out of prison so yeah i mean my second run at prison so by the way so it was better everything was better
0: yeah well we're going to talk about some of that today and so Tell me a little bit about your early life, about your family of origin and what was going on in your family might have predicted that you would become an alcoholic in later
1: years. You know, my father had his own business. My mom was a housewife. Mm-hmm. I had an older brother that was the type of guy that never even got a speeding ticket type guy. You know, he's <laughs> always great in school. And yeah. I never wanted for anything. I always had everything I, I needed, you know, and no problems. But I, I remember at an early age, even in kindergartens, what I really remember mm-hmm. is being, feeling different. I felt different. Like, we would be playing a game outside, and one group, there'd be one group versus the other group. Uh-huh. And I'd go to one group and say, I'm really on y'all's side, but I'm going to act like I'm on these other people's side. Because I wanted, every- <laughs> I don't know if I wanted everybody to like me. I don't know what I wanted, but I... It's like I played both sides, you know, yeah, and yeah. it was different. Nobody
0: else did that. You know? Did that serve you pretty well? Were you liked by both sides? I think, but who really knows, <laughs> you know,
1: because <laughs> my thinking was probably delusional then, too, you know, so it's hard to say. Hard, hard to say.
0: Yeah. Well, I know when I was a kid, I always wanted to be on both sides because I didn't know which was the better side. Yeah, maybe but, that was But it. because I was smaller and because I was overweight when I was a kid. Yeah. I was always one of the last people picked yeah. for any team anyhow, so it wouldn't have made any difference which side I wanted to be on. But uh, I
1: was always the smallest kid in class.
0: Were you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, we got through it, didn't we? We, we got yes. through it. Is there um, a family history of any uh, alcoholism in your family?
1: Yes, my uncle was a stone-cold alcoholic. Mm-hmm. My f- mother's father crashed a plane. He was kind of a barnstormer. When my mom was three years old. Mm-hmm and nobody ever really talked about him and i wondered about maybe him having alcoholism I, I don't know i really don't have any evidence but i can't get anybody to talk about it or couldn't when my parents were alive to talk about him so i didn't really know well my mom probably really didn't know cuz she was 3 when he died you know so yeah so but but my uncle was definitely an a alcoholic and there used to be a, a plaque in my grandmother's house they lived out in the country up in north carolina and the plaque said God grant me the serenity to accept the things that can't change. Courage to change the things I can. And I always looked at that, and I just thought it was neat. I had no idea what. And when she died, I got it. So I, it's in my kitchen now.
0: So. You know, I've heard of that same plaque. There have been a few people on the show who've talked about that plaque. Really? Seeing it when they were a little child. I'm talking about people in their 60s now. Wow. So that was going on. And I, I, it, it, the thing was, in each one of those cases, the person who saw the plaque as a child had no idea why the plaque was there because the family never talked about there being an alcoholic and Alcoholics Anonymous.
1: Same here. Really? Never heard it. Yeah. I I found out little bits here and there that my uncle was in and out and in and out, but nobody ever talked about it. Same deal. In my household, nobody ever talked about feelings. Nobody ever said, I love you, Mm. uh, anything like that, but, they provided and did everything they could for us. I mean, I, 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 nothing wrong with my childhood. My dad, I used to resent him because he worked so much. Yeah. But later in life, I understood that. After I got sober, I understood it, and I'm really grateful he worked so hard. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but I am grateful for him. I realized he was doing what he knew to do.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah. So. Do you remember when you— when you very first took your first taste of alcohol. Oh, or no doubt foods, about it. When was that?
1: Well, me and my neighbors somewhere around 10, 11, 12, we found some cream de menthe, and we just loved the taste of it. But it really we just had like a little sip, never really got any effect out of it or anything, you mm-hmm. know, and 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 but I remember my first drink of when I really did My buddy had gotten a six-pack of Budweiser Mm -hmm. and a carton of Moon Pies. (laughs) And so three of us went out in the woods at night, and we were going to drink two beers apiece. And I remember that was the nastiest tasting stuff. (laughs) I would take a drink of Budweiser and take a bite of Moon Pie, chase it down, you know, just to kill that taste. But when I drank those two beers, after I drank them, when it affected me, it, like, released me. Yeah. It was like a feeling I'd never had before. And and the other two were kind of okay, but I was acting a fool, you know, falling down, laughing, and they were trying to take care of me. Oh, man. But I I hated the taste of it, but I wanted more.
0: Yeah. So First time. How soon after that did you do it again?
1: I think somewhere around... Maybe thirteen or fourteen, and then and then as soon as I could find something, and and that was usually months or something weeks, and somebody was able to get like there was a drink called Orange Driver. It's like a wine or right. cheap wine or something. And mm-hmm. Somebody got and I, I said, man, that tastes good. I can drink that, and and so I drank as much as I could. We had a party at my parents' house when they were out of town, you know, and stuff. Mm-hmm. Some of us got a hold of some of that and just. It started out real innocent and just, I'd I'd pretty much get wasted every time I could, you know, if if it was possible.
0: Now you grew up in North Carolina? Yes. Was there a lot of drinking around you in, in your community?
1: No, it was a it was just a developed neighborhood that mm-hmm, I lived in mm-hmm. and uh it was a small town only a, the whole county was only 20,000 people, mm-hmm, you know, and mm-hmm. the town was like 10,000 then. But you know, I remember we we had a cabin on the lake that we went to in the summertime and then I, I always remember the parents always having a drink, having mm-hmm. their drink, you know. But I don't remember ever getting just wasted or anything, you know, or out of shape or anything, (laughs) not like I was, not like I did, you know. Mm -hmm.
0: So were you drinking on a regular basis by the time you were in high school, or when did you start?
1: Yeah, by high school, I'd found sources that could get me alcohol and would get me alcohol, and I would... It was more of a weekend thing, you know, drink a little bit on the weekend and and get and go to football games was that one thing from high school. We'd go to football games and uh, I was always like class president and stuff in school. And and my sophomore year in high school, Mm -hmm. I was the class president. My first first month, I wrecked a dirt bike and I was in the hospital for a month because I ruptured my spleen. Oh, wow. And I got accustomed to having needles in me all the time. Uh-huh. And right after I got out of there, I don't know how it came about, but I ended up, somebody showed me how to inject cocaine, and I got some immediately, and I bought a syringe, and I was sitting at home that night doing it myself. Oh my God, up. how old were you? 16, 15 or 16, 15, 15, because of the my license, yeah.
0: So you went straight to uh, intravenous yeah, it's just, uh, drugs,
1: yeah, and I swore I'd never do that until I got in that accident and was in the hospital. And of course, they give me pain medicine all the time and stuff, so
0: yeah, yeah. Well, that's tough. I know a lot of, uh, a lot of times, uh, the drugs are easier to get than the alcohol when you're under yeah, legal age, under isn't that right? Age. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So, did you have any difficulties finding the cocaine or the with the injectables, whatever you were using at the time?
1: 15 years old, I really started messing up pretty bad then. My parents were not putting up with my behaviors yeah. or, or stuff. And, and I ran away from home. And I knew this place on the lake the, close by that, where these... People played poker 24 Mm -hmm. hours a day, seven days a week, illegal gambling. Mm. And I went I went there because I knew somebody that was a car dealer and I went up there and I made sandwiches and coffee for people and made money doing that. Hmm. And they would keep me peeled up and stuff. So I'd stay up for days and stuff. And and. I got a lot of connections because there's a lot of bootleggers that went there, mm-hmm. so I ended up getting to know a lot of people that could get me anything of whatever through the years, you know. Wow. So that was the basis for all my stuff there, and and shortly after that, you know, I started getting in trouble a lot.
0: The trouble that you were getting into was what? What was it for?
1: Well, I got locked up every weekend for three months for public drunkenness. There's this one place that everybody used to hang out on the weekend, and every weekend I'd get arrested for being under the influence. And I was usually on on drugs or alcohol, and alcohol, both, you know, really. So whatever I could get my hands on.
0: What kind of testing were they doing at that time? They weren't. They weren't. They were just going by your behavior. So you could get away with looking like you were just drunk when, indeed, you might be on... Un- might be peeled
1: up and they wouldn't know the dip. Back then, they didn't have a clue.
0: So the idea was to just throw you in jail for the weekend and then let yeah. you out at the get beginning of get the Get out
1: week. Sunday night or Monday morning or something, you know?
0: Yeah. What were your parents' reactions to all that?
1: They really just didn't know what to do with me. Mm. You know, that was a thing at the time, drug addiction was not talked about, especially in our household. And I don't know if they just thought it was a phase. But, you know, on the other hand, my father saw his brother being a stone-cold alcoholic and... Maybe he saw that in me. I don't know what what It's, you know, it's like they never gave up on me, though, you know, and because I guess I hadn't put them through enough crap yet till they were ready to really give up on me and say we've had enough. That took a, lo- a lot more abuse, basically.
0: So when you were 16, you were starting the intravenous drug use, and then you were hanging out in places where you could get pills and the yeah. booze you wanted. at What point did your parents first start trying to help you with what was going on?
1: I would always, I'd go on these periods and I'd come back and start staying at my parents and behave for a little while Uh or whatever. I remember one time I'd eaten so many pills, I went into a coma for like five days. They had a doctor come to the house and the doctor wouldn't touch me because he didn't know what was wrong. Mm. And I woke up after five days and just in a daze. And I had these big holes in my arm, my back where I'd had a cut and it infected oh. and just ate a hole in me and stuff. And they put me in a hospital uh, in about an hour away from my hometown trying to treat me, you know, at that time. And and I don't know, I was nowhere close to ready and you know? I was nowhere close to being ready and. Still thinking, you know, well, y'all don't understand. You know, uh, if you knew my intentions, you would understand why I do what I do. And I didn't even know why I was doing what I did, you know.
0: Was there any acknowledgement in your mind at the time about the fact that you were having a problem or you didn't see a problem?
1: I didn't see a problem, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and actually I thought everybody did that somewhat or. Everybody just wasn't that far along yet, or something. Yeah. I don't know what that what that really was. Yeah, but I was probably a lot worse than everybody. And I mean, I thought everybody got thrown out of bars all the time. And after I got sober, I found out no, there's only one or two here and there that get that happens to that gets that bad and stuff. Yeah.
0: What kind of connection did you see to the drug and alcohol use uh, steering your behavior with regard to some of the criminal things you did and
1: Oh my God!
0: What was the what was the re- relation between those two?
1: Well, you know, after I did the, I got on probation for all the public drunkenness accounts. I just, I think it took away the inhibitions I had, mm-hmm. the drugs and alcohol. Like, like I'd do anything. And I mean, there was a time. I mean, a buddy of mine, he would lose his license, and he'd always had a real fast car, and he'd get me to drive him around. And me and him argued all the time, and. I remember one time we were arguing about something, and I just stopped in the middle of the street where everybody was hanging out and stuff. I said, you drive the damn car. And and I just got out and walked off. And I went and broke in a drugstore. I don't know why. It was my great-uncle's drugstore. I knew how the back door locked. Oh, okay. And I knew how to get in. (laughs) And I went in there, and I got, like, two grocery bags full of drugs and, and carried them, walked home, which was about... Three or four miles away, with those at like three in the morning or something. And my buddy, as, soon as I got out, the cops saw him and they knew him and they arrested him for uh, driving with no license.
0: But they knew nothing about the burglary. No,
1: they never. I never got caught. Like six months later, I had them hidden down in the woods, and some kids found a, a cooler full of pills down there. And uh, I mean, a big cooler full of pills and stuff down there. And uh, you know. I was at home at like five in the morning at my parents' house, Uh and there was carpet in the living room, and and I had thousands of pills stacked there, and I'd lost track of time. (laughs) And my dad wakes up and walks in there, and he sees that, and he says, get those out of my damn house. And I don't remember what happened after that.
0: I know I got them out of the house, but I don't remember. What were you inventorying them or something like that? (laughs) That's what all I had. Uh, Had you become a a dealer at that point? Were you? Oh, yeah. Well,
1: after I'd worked in that uh, house where they played poker all the time, Mm -hmm. I met bootleggers that sold, that started growing pot because sugar prices went high, bootlegging, they started Mm -hmm. growing Mm -hmm. pot. And so I sold pot for them, sold Mm -hmm. marijuana Mm -hmm. for those guys and all that. And uh, there was a guy in my hometown that was really uh, kind of—everybody looked up to him. He's a race car guy, and he had bought a bunch of pot, and it was bad, and it wasn't good. And I showed him how to get rid of it, and I told him to take good stuff and mix it and then sell it. And and years later, he got murdered and cut up and left in the back of a van in a car wash by some other guys I knew that were dealing and stuff. And I was like—I mean— It's like the longer I was around, the deeper I got in this stuff Uh and and the more mean people got and stuff. And I'm like, you know, early 70s, everybody was friendly and love and peace. Yeah. And it just got meaner and meaner and meaner. And then. I, I was on probations or something all the time. I violated them every time. I could not stay sober. Mm. I did weekends in jail for a year. Mm-hmm. They dropped me off after work at 5 p.m. As soon as I got off of work and get, let me out Monday morning when I went back to work. I violated that, moved to South Carolina, got arrested down there for selling 25 pounds of pot to an undercover
0: agent. and. It's
1: just it got worse and worse, like I say, and just I got deeper. I got my first prison sentence then, you know, six years. So
0: you were in your early twenties then. Twenty one. Twenty one when you were got your first prison sentence. Yes. What What were the circumstances around that? How did that? I'd sold
1: who I found later found out was an undercover agent twenty five pounds of Missouri ragweed. <laughs> you would have been lucky to hyperventilate if you smoked all twenty five pounds.
0: <laughs> But it didn't make any difference that it wasn't marijuana.
1: No. And and they raided my trailer and found a pound of it in there. And there was two juveniles in my trailer. Oh, no. And because we were all, I was young and I had 15-year-old friends and 16-year-old friends. And uh, so they arrested me under under the name of Raymond Dennis Kajak, which wasn't my name. and, Mm -hmm. And then... I was in jail, and they brought those kids down there and said, oh, yeah, that's Rose. And I'm like, oops. <laughs> and, but at the time, I'd started dating this girl. Her uncle was a, a state senator in South Carolina, and uh, he told her that if she kept seeing me, I was going to get the maximum sentence. And, well, we kept seeing each other. and I got the maximum sentence for that. So that
0: was as a deterrence to her seeing you was to get you the maximum yeah. sentence?
1: And I never heard from her again.
0: So he arranged that for you, didn't he?
1: I think so, I must have. I mean, we couldn't get anything done. Cause in North Carolina, my dad's best friend was my attorney and was a very good attorney. And he caught me out almost everything, you
0: know. But this was in South Carolina. This that you was got... in
1: South Carolina and we didn't have the contacts
0: there. So you got thrown into prison in South Carolina?
1: Yeah, yeah. Did 27 months and two days and went straight to maximum security because I had warrants from North Carolina for breaking probation and stuff. So So
0: they combined it all?
1: No, they didn't combine it. They just, since I had warrants from another state, they put me in maximum security, wouldn't let me in minimum because I was too, a flight risk, I guess. So I started out in the big house. What was that like? What was that experience like? That was strange. That was like, oh man, this place. The first day I was there, I was in a, a small room that was overcrowded. There was prob there was three of us and it was built for two uh-huh. and one of us had to sleep on the floor and I was the last one in. So somehow I found out about this dormitory. It was a therapeutic community is what it was called. Mm-hmm. And if you were in the therapeutic community, you didn't have to get a job. So next day I was signed up for that therapeutic community. And I'm real grateful for it today mm. because it gave me a base when I did get sober on a lot of things like it taught me a lot about uh, what was it transactional analysis and different things to do with the with the brain and you know and and behavior and stuff like wow, that wow that
0: sounds really progressive for the time it it
1: was in 75 I think 76 because I'd made my first aA meeting in 75 before just before I got oh, you did? yes I knew I needed help or was trying, no, I didn't know I needed help. I was trying to get out of trouble. Uh-huh. I was having to go to court in North Carolina for something in 75. And somebody said, go to, no, I got, I'm lying again. I got, <laughs> I caught, I got, caught. it all runs
0: together, doesn't yes, it? Yes, <laughs> it does.
1: I got caught, I was shopping in a drugstore at like two in the morning. <laughs> This is before they had 24-hour drug stores, (laughs) And I got caught, so uh, I was trying to get out of that. And I did. I got got out of it. I got probation out of it. And and 18-month sentence, I think. That was just after I'd got out of jail and prison in South Carolina. It all runs together, like you say. Was the
0: AA part of the sentence? But but
1: no. Before I went to court, I went to... uh, AA meeting because my girlfriend, me and a buddy and my girl, I had a house. We're sitting around talking about drugs. We wish we could get high or something. I said, I know where I can get some drugs. And so we went and I took them to the same great uncle's drug oh. store at 3 in the morning, 2 in the morning, whatever it was. And me and the other guy went and broke in the store and got course drugs and we come back and my girlfriend's sitting in alley and we get back and she's sitting there talking to somebody i'm like oh my oh. god just we just jump in the car Got out of there. I said, get out of here. And we left, and and the next day we went and traded the car in another town so we'd get a different car, nobody would identify the car. And, but they figured it out. It was me and her. They never did figure out who the third guy was, so I was real proud of so that. So did she
0: get into trouble, too?
1: She got in trouble. Her dad was in AA, and so he took her to a treatment center in Greensboro, North Carolina, and she got introduced to AA. And so... She was like the love of my life, I guess. And, mm-hmm. and, and so when, when she got out, she really didn't want anything to do with me. You know how it is when you get sober, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, so I started going to AA, AA hoping I could get her back. I don't remember anything out of those meetings except I remember one person telling me, well, if you are an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, you're going to end up in jails, institution, or dead. And I laughed at them. Hmm. but with less than a year i was doing my first prison sentence so this
0: was in 1975 yes that that was going on that
1: was going 76 i had my first prison sentence
0: one of our other guests on on the show early on was uh tom d and tom is a regular at the meetings that you and i go to yeah, all the time yeah. one of the things he mentioned was when he first got into prison first went to prison that Trying to get off of the drugs and alcohol was difficult because there was so much of it behind the bars yeah
1: there's you can people that say they've got so they didn 't use in prison, but don 't count that i 'm like bullshit because I said you can get high in prison just I mean i did i i 'd go get cough medicine because mm-hmm. I smoked at the time and I coughed all the time and I had allergies, and so they'd just give me. They'd say, oh, yeah, you need something for that cough, and they'd give me cough medicine. And then there was alcohol in there, and there was pot, and, you know, you you could stay loaded in there. And while in prison, in maximum security prison, I was trying to get release on work release to University of South Carolina, study program, Mm -hmm. because in the prison, they had a uh, community college come in there. And and I got involved in that, made straight A's and everything and stuff and did really good because I was pretty much sober because I got to be the chairman of the AA meeting (laughs) (laughs) in prison.
0: So you were going to AA while you were behind bars? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I was president there. I was in maximum security for somewhere around a year, I guess it was. And I mean, you're behind Two big barbed wire fences, huge, with dogs running in the mineral and electric wires, I mean, electric eyes and stuff and guards, guard posts. I go from that environment to the next day when they put me on study release, They take me down at 7 in the morning, drop me off in Columbia, South Carolina, and go to the University of South Carolina and pick me up at 7 that evening.
0: Wow, so you're a free man for the day.
1: Free for 12 hours.
0: And did the people around you in the classes and everything else, did they know you were on a school release type arrangement? Some
1: did. I let some know after a while, but most didn't. I remember having a speech class in there. And I had this speech, and I, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed by it now. But I, my speech was on the the profitability of selling drugs. Oh, I mean, and I was so proud of that. And I was like, "What?" A there
0: must have been jaws dropping all there over were. that class.
1: I was stamping them, but I'm what an
0: idiot I was! Oh, what wow. a total
1: idiot I was! I mean, really.
0: So you were in 27 months you said 27 months and 2 days and 2 days behind bars yeah you got paroled yes that's how that works yes yeah i was
1: well when after they put me to medium i mean minimum security to go to the university yeah well i got to know people that had been in prison and got out and lived in that town and they would bring me drugs to the university and then i got busted by the by, the warden and he found a pack of rolling papers in my locker, and uh he asked me what those for, and I told him they're to patch broken cigarettes. And so
0: he bought that.
1: No, <laughs> they sent me back to medium security. Out on a farm, it's like twenty thousand acres out in the middle of nowhere. You ain't going nowhere in that place. So, so you're
0: just out in the fields.
1: Yeah. And, that, and you had to get a job there. And so mm-hmm. I went to work for the school principal. I was a secretary for the school principal there. I did the typing and all that stuff. Well, that's so. nice.
0: So you didn't have to be out in the hot sun digging or whatever they were doing.
1: I didn't have to go out. I think exactly what they did. They worked out in the fields and stuff and. I figured out a way
0: out of that, basically. So, how old were you at this point?
1: 22, 23, somewhere
0: around in there. So, all this happened within really like about a three-year period.
1: Yeah, two or three-year period, period.
0: From robbing your uncle's drugstore to working yeah. as a principal. That
1: was probably a little. That was probably six years. And the drugstore I got caught for. No, I got caught for two of them. I didn't get caught for the first one, but. Mm. That was after I did time in South Carolina. I got caught breaking in another drugstore. In North Carolina? In North Carolina. So you did time. I, I was desperate. I owed $50,000, whatever it was. I'd stolen bales of pot from dealers. And mm. I had people wanting me. And I really didn't care what happened. I knew this place had a silent alarm and everything. And I just like, I, I don't care. I don't care if I go in. And the cop came in there on me and he put a gun to my head and said, you know, I'll shoot. And I'm like, I really don't care if you shoot or not.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I was at that point that I just, didn't I didn't care. care if I lived huh. or died, you know. I just, I, I didn't know how to get out. I was so deep into whatever, you know.
0: Sounds real hopeless.
1: Oh, was totally hopeless. Totally hopeless. And that's when I got an 18-month sentence for the uh, for the drugs they found in my car.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not, And then... They put off the court for the felonies of breaking in the Mm drugstore. And uh, I did 18-month sentence in jail, and they took me back to court for the two felonies. They waited until a certain judge came out of retirement and came up. Mm -hmm. And that judge gave me probation for the felonies.
0: Now, was this with your uncle or the the lawyer that your dad knew?
1: And and when I went to court that day— My dad shook my hand, and he says, good luck, because I'll never help you again. And my attorney shook my hand and said, good luck, because I'll never represent you again. And for the drug charges, the felony charges, they gave me. They told me they wanted me to go to this drug treatment program in Texas mm-hmm. that they'd seen on 60 Minutes. Carol Burnett's daughter mm-hmm. had gone there, and they did that, and they said, well, maybe that's some hope. Hmm. And so I still had to go back to prison and finish my prison sentence Mm -hmm. in North Carolina. I finished that prison sentence like first of December sometime. So the day I finished, South Carolina picked me up for parole violation and took me to South Carolina. And I was there in two days before Christmas. They said, pack your stuff. I was in a center where they classify you and all this stuff. and. They said, pack your stuff. You're going home. And I'm like, that's not funny. You know, where am I going? They said, no, you're going home. The state's got too many prisoners, and they've got to release so many by Christmas, and uh, you're one of them, they're releasing. Oh, wow. And so I called my dad two days before Christmas in North Carolina and say, I'm in South Carolina. And he says, I said, hey, they just let me out of prison. And you could just hear the silence on the phone and that, what the hell have you done now? Oh. You know, and it was just, and I remember he sent somebody down there and picked me up. And I remember being at home at my parents' house at Christmas that year. I never felt so out of place in all my life. I never want to feel that again.
0: I can see it still, still touches you.
1: Yeah, it's hard. I tell you what my son ever did to me, what I did to my parents, I'd kill that little <laughs> I mean, I, I was terrible. It yeah. was terrible. And, uh, and I got back home, and I was right back doing, getting loaded again. Mm. But from those two felonies, I had to go do six months in Texas for, and go through this treatment center. But they didn't say when. Well, I'd been home about two weeks, and I was doing the same thing. And I ran into my attorney downtown, and he says, well, how's it going, Roe? And I said, terrible. Get me the hell out of here. You know, I knew I I was going right back doing this. I know I was going to get locked up again. There's no doubt about it.
0: So was that? What kind of admission was that to your inner self?
1: That was a being sick and tired of being sick and tired. Uh-huh. I'd gone to my probation officer when I got out. I'd gone to my probation officer or whatever I had, parole, I'm not sure, it's North Carolina. He'd given me this questionnaire, and I tried to be real slick. I said, what is that? And he said, well, it's just to determine whether you're a high risk, low risk, or medium risk. And I said, well, how'd I do? Arrogantly, I yeah. said that. He said, you're a high risk. I'm like, well, what does that mean? He said, it's just a matter of time before you go back. And I laughed at
0: him. Yeah.
1: I'd done some drugs just before I went in to see him. And I knew he was right. And then right after that's when I ran into my attorney. I said, get me the hell out of here. I didn't know how not to do drugs or alcohol. Right. But I didn't know how to stop either. Mm -hmm. I was at a total loss. I didn't,
0: sick and tired of being sick and tired. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous: The Story of How More Than 100 Men Have Recovered from Alcoholism. This is the word for word, cover to cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, any place. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. When you were getting the messages early on when you were going to those AA meetings, both outside and also Behind bars, what was getting in the way of you being able to be affected by what was being said, or what do you remember from those that might have aided you in realizing you had a problem and you needed to get sober?
1: I can't, I can't say that I really ever conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic. Huh? I, I like when you brought that question up. I started thinking, well, what did I get when I was president of that AA or chairman of that AA group? And I'm like. Pfft. Nothing that made me look good till I got to minimum security and I never went back.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, I used it as a tool. Yeah. And, and so when I came to treatment in Texas and get, did get sober, yeah. I wouldn't go back to AA because I felt like I'd done them wrong. I felt guilt. Really? Yeah. And, and almost like you people down here in AA would know that I did that in South Carolina. You know, I mean, that's totally ridiculous, but that's my thinking. I was so delusional. So delusional.
0: Well, a, a brain and a spirit addled by alcohol and drugs oh my God. is delusional, isn't oh. it?
1: I mean, I see it in other people so much more than I can see it in myself. I can see it in the room, and I can see people talking about this, how whatever crazy thing they're talking about. And I'm like, oh, my God, I did that, too. You know, I just—it's mm-hmm. almost I hang my head and like, God— I, how could I ever possibly thought that was any type of sanity whatsoever? And it wasn't.
0: Yeah. Isn't that something when you're in the middle of the disease, it doesn't acknowledge anything. No. Yeah. It's
1: so far gone from reality. It's like,
0: holy. So talk about what happened when you got down to uh, Texas from North Carolina.
1: I went to this drug treatment program. It was a 30 day program. And, uh, I knew I had to do something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, they put me in I- isolation for my first week mm-hmm. because they would evidently got the blood mixed up with somebody else and thought I had something that was contagious. And so they then they finally figured it out. But when I did get out, I started doing. You got group therapies. You got. We had a meditation type deal where I can learn to control my breathing and stuff. And I was real serious. Like some people go in there and just go to sleep. Oh, sure. And I didn't. I'm like, no, I want to get everything out of this I can get. And I was real serious. I, I It was the last house on the block for me. I'd already been in prison several times. My mm-hmm. family disowned me. You know, my my mom and my older brother did not talk to me mm. at all. And my mom showed up the last time I was in prison She showed up one time to see me. She was in the car, outside the gate, wouldn't come in, drunk.
0: That must have broken her heart.
1: Oh, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, my son did to me what I did to them. I I guess I know more now, being involved with it, to where tough love is what— Really shook me and shook my foundation and made me, I got to do something. Mm-hmm. When my dad said no more, and I knew he meant it. My attorney said no more, and I knew he meant it. I'm like, I've run them all in the ground. I can't, yeah. I got to do something different.
0: Well, it sounds like they stumbled upon the no more with love basis of Al-Anon. Yes. Which is that what that whole program is about. Yes. I get it. So you get out of treatment. Was there aftercare? Were you going back on a what regular basis or what, was, what did no, that look I, like? No, I
1: met a, uh, a counselor. There was a counselor in our hospital that he said, hey, I've got an efficiency apartment. You can come stay there when you get out. So I did. Mm-hmm. And there was like five of us that was staying in that efficiency apartment. Mm-hmm. And he stayed at his girlfriend's most of the time. And uh, after... A few days or something, I met somebody that said, "Hey, I got a little two-inch foam rubber mattress you can sleep on," and so I got that, and uh, and I started looking for work because in in treatment they says you got to do stuff different. You got to quit asking your family for money. You learn learn how to survive, and you know make your own living and stuff because that's what you always do you go to get rescued and you need to quit doing that
0: was your sobriety date in treatment what do you mark as your sobriety date
1: well my sobriety date was January 13th 1981 uh-huh and that was in that was when I went to treatment right and I was there I ended up staying there seven weeks they told me I need to stay a little longer mm-hmm. so i did when I got out I started hearing about this program called Narcotics Anonymous, mm-hmm. and like I say, I wasn't going back to AA. I'd done them wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I thought. And uh, little did I know, everybody does that type of crap. <laughs> just about. It's, it's, but I thought I was unique. Thought I was yeah. unique, and I knew I had to have something that was going to be real to me, because I was going. I was in this deal for my for the long run, mm-hmm. and I wasn't going to make it if I didn't. And I'd heard about Narcotics Anonymous, and I went to a NA meeting, and I saw people there that I totally identified with. Hmm. They'd been where I'd been, knew what I was talking about, Mm -hmm. didn't seem full of crap, seemed like something I could do for a long term. And so I started going there. But I went there when the meeting started, and when the meeting was over, I was out of there. Right. And I'd still go out and run the streets at night, and, and I also got a job then I got a job, my first job that ever got on my own, as Houston's economy was great at the time. And I looked for two weeks. I went door to door, filling out applications, saying, "Hey, I'd been a drug addict, got into prison." <laughs> and all of them were like, "Yeah, we'll contact you, don't contact us, you know And, and uh what made you be that honest? I knew I had to do stuff different. Uh-huh. And they taught me that, and, you know, I had to be, I had to, I was probably too honest. Because when I went to get my driver's license, I went with a couple of other guys that were new in the program. And the one in front of me, the officer asked him if he ever had a drug and alcohol problem. He said yes, and they wouldn't give him his license. So I didn't say it when they asked me. But I was out looking for work, mm-hmm. and, and I was really two weeks in, and I was really ready to just give it up. I was
0: already just, uh, now you're sober by this. point. Yeah, I'm
1: sober. I'm sober for about two months now. Something like that. Still wanted to use every day. Still had that thought all the time. And, you know, and my mind was telling me, you know, you're just a screw up. You might as well just go use or something. And I drove by this boat store on Fondren and boats always fascinated me.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: I said, okay. I'll go put in one more job applications and reward myself and go look at these boats when I get done. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at this time, I thought I was management material, but I didn't <laughs> right. have much of a work right. record. <laughs> and so I go look at the boats and I'm looking around and it just now I look at it as God. But at the time I was like, hey, I wonder if they need any help. Hmm. And so I went up there and I said, hey, do y'all need any help? And they says, yeah, we need a flunky. We'll pay you three seventy five an hour. I said, man, I'll do anything, huh. and I went to work for him. ended up working for those people for, like, seven years. But, I mean, there's so much in that first year. You know, like I was talking about, I'd show up at the meetings right when they started mm-hmm. and leave right when it was over. It's kind of like I didn't want to be with you people. You people were different or something. I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. But I was running around at night. I'd never been to a big city like this and, and being – you know, everything fascinated me. Uh-huh. Well, I was building some race boats for some people from Mexico, and and they had these fast motorcycles that I could borrow and use any time. And I was driving one late at 2 or 3 in the morning. And I come home, and I'm chaining that motorcycle up to the steps. As I get home, and there's some drunk guy over here off to my side talking, and I'm just ignoring him because I can tell he's drunk. I just don't want to hear him. Mm-hmm. So I'm down there leaning over chaining up the motorcycle and this guy stabs me in the back with a big hunting knife Oh no! and just out of reflexes I reached around and grabbed the knife and I wouldn't let go it cut my hand over, all the way open and he ran off but bottom line I was in the emergency room that night about 3 in the morning or something I never felt so all alone in my life because I hadn't made any friends or anything in meetings uh-huh. or anything I hadn't yeah. spent any time with anybody and in walks a guy from the meeting How he knew I was there, I still don't know to this day. And I realized I needed people. And I realized I needed a higher power of some sort too.
0: Did you see the divine intervention at that Uh, point or did you reflect on it later?
1: Later, it it was later, it was later. I just know I was just, I I was empty and I needed it. But of course they gave me pain medicine in there. And the day I was gonna get out of the hospital, this was, I had 15 months sober. A day I was going to get out of the hospital, they gave me a prescription for pain medicine and my plan I was trying to make sure somebody could take me get my prescription filled so I could take double dose one time
0: uh-huh
1: and so I got a guy I knew to pick me up and took me to the pharmacy took me home. I lived in an apartment, I always kept sober roommates people had been sober longer than mm-hmm. me, and that was a good thing i I took It said take two every four hours, whatever it took, and I took four. And then I gave them to my roommate to dispense to me. And I don't know if I got higher off of them or not, but the intent was there. This was at 15 months sober. And so I sit around for the next week in the in a meeting thinking, Did I get loaded or did I not? Did I get loaded or
0: did I not? I mean Or did you slip or not, isn't that what you're asking?
1: Yes. Did I slip or not? And and I thought, well maybe I'll go go out and get good and messed up just to make it official. Yeah. And I didn't at that time I didn't talk to anybody about anything. There's some new guy there that I'd met that had just got out of prison. And I walked outside during the meeting, and he was out there. Mm-hmm. And I told him about it, told him my dilemma. And I said, "I said, man, i got 15 months. I don't want to give that up. He looked at me just with this puzzled look and says, who are you doing this for? 15 months, what difference does it make? Mm. And it made sense to me. And I walked in there and got another desire chip and started my time over. And I'm so glad I did because it kept me honest. Now, today, there's been several times through the years that I've had to take pain medicine for uh, uh, kidney stones and different things. Sure. And I never take that pain medicine till I give them to somebody to dispense to me. I still do that because I don't care how long I've been sober. My, once that stuff enters my brain, I want more.
0: And that's good advice for people who are listening to this. A lot of people are scared to death of taking meds. Yeah.
1: There's a reason. There's a time for them. They're for a purpose. Yes, there is. There's a
0: time and there's a reason. I've had had three back operations. I I know what what real pain is about. Part of sobriety is accountability and responsibility. And acknowledging that you still at X number of years sober should be giving the pills to someone else, like I gave them to my wife to dispense. That to me is, is humility in action. And we got to stay that way. We got to stay that way. You know, I mean, as long as I've been sober every time I've had to do that. And, and it's a good reminder that I'm still an alcoholic. So the fact that you reset your sobriety date, I've seen several people do that over the years, over, a seemingly easy to pass off thing. Like uh, there was a guy in one of my meetings one night, he'd gone down to Costa Rica and he smoked a bunch of grass down there and he came back and he, in the room, there were about 50 men in the room, he started talking about having done that and that he kind of had come to the conclusion that he didn't need a desire chip because that was in a different place, it wasn't alcohol, blah, blah, blah. By the time that meeting ended though, Roe, because he spoke towards the beginning of the meeting, by the time that meeting ended, he got up and got a desire chip. Not that men were browbeating him or talking directly to him, but it's what's in me that really counts. Exactly. Exactly.
1: I'm not accountable to anybody as far as, you know, my sobriety, but if I'm not accountable to myself
0: you were out of commission for a while that that's that stab wound did it take a long time to heal or no,
1: i don't remember i i'm pretty resilient <laughs> it was a it was a 10 inch hunting knife yeah they caught the guy and everything
0: miss your vital organs though i guess huh? he was
1: standing above me and it came down at an angle and they said if it had if it had come in like that of course it'd gone through my heart or lungs or something you know and they caught him yeah Brought him in the hospital that night when I was in the emergency room. Says, "This the guy," and I said, "Yes, it is." And I will testify against you. Uh-huh. And I did. I went to court and testified against him.
0: Did he get locked up?
1: No, he got probation.
0: Uh huh.
1: And and he had to pay a restitution to me, and I think I got like two payments, and I never got anything else. You, out of him. Did you
0: ever hear from him again?
1: He lived in the same apartment complex right across from me. Oh my gosh. I was scared to death going back there, I, I didn't see him in there at the apartment complex anymore. Maybe they made him move out. I don't know, but I, I know I started carrying a bat around with me. Did he ever get sober? I don't know whatever happened to him. I hope he did. I really hope he did.
0: That's a long time ago. So after you're back uh, where you can work, you continue to work for the boat the boat store. Yeah, I
1: ended up working for them, and some like I say, some people were coming up from Mexico buying these boats and then converting them to race boats and I was helping them on the side and stuff and uh, I really liked racing stuff and and so I just kind of fell into racing myself I found a boat on the side of the road after a hurricane and I spent every single day off I had for the next year building it rebuilding
0: it. In the shop that you worked at?
1: In the shop they would let me come in on my days off and I, I built it and made a race boat out of it and ended up Doing real good with it. And so I ended up other people want me to make bill stuff for them. And, and so at seven years with this company, they end up going broke and filing bankruptcy and my helping other people just turned into a business. And I worked out of my house for like six months till my neighbors kind of got tired of it, and, uh-huh. and I'm like, "Well, I need to go get a place." And I went to his place, and uh, I was in that building for 33 years, I think, doing my own business. And yeah, I designed my own boat and built my own boat in the 80s, and uh, and won like six world championships with it. And and by building this boat, people found out I messed with this aerospace material carbon fiber and right it took over my business and now I've got a business that does nothing but carbon fiber work they race car bodies race cars all kinds of stuff and
0: wow that's amazing
1: yeah mm-hmm. and, and then that racing just led to another type of racing which is Bonneville Salt Flats racing and I had a neighbor move in, a retired, move in the shop next to me. He was retired. He was a mechanical engineer. We became, became good friends. Uh-huh. He said, I want to go to Bonneville. You want to go? And I said, sure. I went. And he comes back. He's like, I'm going to build a car. And I'm like, sure you are. Well, he was a lot smarter, and I gave him credit for it. Probably the smartest man I ever met in my life. Uh-huh. I, in, in my racing stuff, stuff I learned through staying sober in the program, the honesty, the being out front about stuff, mm-hmm. the no ulterior motive stuff, the, the the principles behind the steps. I guess I used them when talking with these people and through the years, and I've just ended up every time I end up with somebody that's brilliant, that puts me in a position... Mm-hmm. Like with the boats, I met, met an engineering guy that was brilliant with machine work. He built me these exotic engines that nobody had anything like. And mm-hmm. I, I won like six world championships because of him. And the same thing with Bonneville. When I met Neil, he was brilliant. He designed his own stuff. I've set 15 world records with that, land speed records. Because of him and the people I've got to know. it I just drive the darn thing. I don't really... How do you keep from
0: taking credit for all that?
1: Because I know it's dangerous if I do. In what way? Because of my ego. My ego will get too big for itself. So
0: what happens if your ego takes over?
1: Oh, I'll end up drunk. No, Not a doubt. I've watched it happen to so many people. I'm scared to death of it. Yeah. I think about the lottery sometimes. I'm like, what if I won a several... $20 million. <laughs> I think I'd die. I'd start thinking I was somehow responsible for earning that money or something. I, I think I'd take too much credit. I will buy a lottery ticket once in a blue moon. but
0: Sounds to me like you've hit the lottery a number of times in your life.
1: I've gotten so many gifts sober. Uh, there was a guy that used to take care of me when I was out messing up. and We were friends all my life. And, and when I lived with him, one night i Stole all his coins and his guns and went out and sold them and bought drugs with them. Sure, you know, of course. And next day, I helped him look for him. You know, like somebody else had stolen. You know, uh-huh. and uh, he always thought somebody else had. Well, one year I was up in North Carolina at Christmas time, visiting an old friend. They said, "Hey, you need to go by and see Joe." I was probably fifteen years better sober at this time, and they said, "You need to go by and see Joe. He's probably not going to live another year." And I just looked up at the ceiling and I'm like, okay, God, I get the message. I had the money in my pocket Mm -hmm. everything. And I went to him the next day and made amends. Well, I always wanted to buy a house, but the money I made, I just didn't make enough to buy a house. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to take other jobs because I really didn't think I had any business with money. I thought I'd start thinking of somebody. And and so this guy died and he left me a a double-wide mobile home on an acre of land a 67 Mustang Fastback GT, a 57—no, a 63 Thunderbird, a 63 Ford van, and left his brother a Ford Sable Hmm. and made his brother executor of the wheel. So if he had contested the wheel, he wouldn't even got the Ford Sable. You know, I'm feeling guilty about getting all this stuff, you know, because I ripped the guy off, you know, and just went back and said, I'm sorry, basically, and, you know, made restitution. And and his brother calls me and says, hey, can we buy that property? We kind of want to keep it in the family. And I'm like, sure, 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 you know. I, yeah. He says, well, what do you want, $5,000 or something? I said, I, I don't know. I don't know any of the particular. Oh, if you think I'm going to go out and borrow a big bunch of money, you're crazy. I said, well, just take it easy. I said, I'm just wait for the paperwork. We'll uh-huh. figure it out. So in the meantime, I went up to North Carolina to clean the place out. Well, a high school friend came by. He said, oh, I heard you were in town. I thought you might be over here cleaning the place out. He says, I'm getting ready to buy this from Joe's brother. I said, really? Mm. And the conclusion I came to was it didn't matter if I felt guilty. That was his last will and testament, and I'm going to honor it. Uh-huh. And so I did. And I sold the place. I sold the ha- the mobile home and the property for $75,000. Mm. And it took that money and I bought the house where I live now. You know, it, it lands in my lap. The yeah. same thing with the race cars. I don't want for anything. It always just lands in my lap.
0: Sounds like you've created a soft landing spot for this by the way you're living your life.
1: Oh, no doubt. No doubt. It, it's That's what I tell. I try to emphasize to people, just stay involved, stay in, in the meeting, stay You'll find your place, whether it's doing steps with somebody, whether it's it's doing the GSR meetings, sure. no matter what it is, you'll find it. But do something. Do something. There's more than going to meetings and going to meetings. There's there's getting so much out of it. Become Saying hi to somebody that you thought was insignificant, that they really are significant.
0: It's amazing how many people just... Somebody saying their name and hello is the height of their day. It means the world. It means the world. And it's a very small gesture, but it has a lot of impact. Along the way in the last 40 years, can you think of some milestones in your recovery that or, or milestones that happened in your life that had you not been sober, you wouldn't have gotten through or the flip side of that, things that have occurred that you can directly attribute to your being in AA? Uh, good things, let's say.
1: No doubt. No doubt. Early on, every thought was, how am I going to get high? You know, something to do with getting Uh loaded. At six months, I remember going through the day and thinking, wow, I hadn't thought about getting loaded all day long. And that was a major deal for me, major deal for me. Uh At a year sober, I was going through a phase that was real resentful. Why am I an alcoholic? Why can't I go to a bar and have have half a beer and walk out? And how come? Why? Yeah. And then I found out about the. I, I was new to Houston, and I found out about the kids at MD Anderson that were five, six, three, four, five, six years old that had terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? I'll take this little old disease I got. Now here's kids that don't complain about anything, got the best attitudes, and they're dying and haven't even lived life yet. Mm-hmm. What right do I have whining about being an alcoholic? And then I, I, I think some years later, you know, I became grateful for being an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. But, but also, I, my first year, I didn't get in any relationships mm-hmm. because they. They were pushing that early on, stay out of a relationship. I'm like, well, I just did 27 months. What's another year, you know? (laughs) But but I remember one of my first dates, too, early on, somewhere right around the year. Mm -hmm. I never felt so awkward in all my life. Mm -hmm. I felt like less than when I was in high school. I was Mm -hmm. just like, do I put my arm around her? Do I kiss her? Do I? I was just total bumbling idiot. <laughs> and that's okay. That's that, that yeah. what I'm trying to portray to people, it's okay to feel like a bumbling idiot. You're not going to explode. You're not going to self destruct. You just maybe learn something. You mm-hmm. know? Then at three years I had a real hard time and that one year is what I call about acceptance. Sure. Is acceptance of the fact that I'm an alcoholic. At three years I was really having a hard time thinking about when I would hear the word God in a meeting, I'd get up and walk out. I'm like, oh God, not God.
0: I used to do that too. Yeah, yeah. And you did. Yeah, it. I did, I did.
1: And it's like, I was an old timer at our meeting. I wasn't, I, I was I wasn't, still wasn't talking to people much, and, and and so about what was really going on inside me and stuff. I'm like, I went outside, outside the meeting, I said, well, I wanna know if there's a God or is not, who's here to tell me, who's, you know, I said, Who's been six feet under and can tell me there is a God? You know, I said, I don't I don't really see the proof or whatever. Uh I was trying to figure it all out. He said, do you have a big book? I said, yes. I bought one and uh, at a Thursday night meeting and I got somebody else to carry it out of the club for me because I didn't want to be seen with it. (laughs) But I'd never opened it. (laughs) And so he told me to read page 449 through 452, which was the doctor, the alcoholic, and he talks about acceptance. Sure. But something about reading that made me realize I didn't need to figure out if there's a God or not. Uh I just needed to quit trying to figure it out more than anything but somebody around the same time and said just believe that i can believe Mm. and i believe that i can Mm -hmm. do that but one thing i did do ever since i got sober somebody told me to do this says when you go to bed at night say thank you for keeping me sober and i've done that every day for 40 years sure Uh, and i quit smoking 36 years ago. And so when I go to bed at night, I say, thank you for keeping me sober. Thank you for keeping me smokeless. The end. Unless something phenomenal has happened that day, then I'll say thank you for that. And Mm -hmm. it's got to be something out of the ordinary, you know, that happens for me to do that. Mm -hmm. Somewhere around three years, you know, I I went through that and I started getting a little bit of a, a belief. And then somewhere right after that, I read somewhere it said When you find a higher power that you can believe in, you need never be lonely again. And I'm like, don't know why, don't know where I read that, but it hit me like a ton of bricks. And that big empty hole of loneliness we feel when we get in here—I mm-hmm. have not felt that in thirty some, thirty-six, thirty-seven years since since I read that statement.
0: Wow, what a transformation!
1: Oh my God, it—it's it, a huge, it's huge, and, and I can't explain it. Yeah. And, and but since then, so many things happen. You know, I used to say things happen to me all the time today i say things happen for me
0: yeah and
1: and and it's it's like it changed my perspective i don't know what it did at four years i used to go around saying i'm the happiest i ever been since i was a little kid because i remember being happy as a little kid and of course i started in a serious relationship around four years too Uh, Mm -hmm. i was in one before that was in and out and it was a we were both a disaster, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. that lady's now dead. She's the mother of my son, and she's dead from drinking and stuff mm-hmm. and all and uh, uh but after that, I got in a relationship with a lady that normal she didn't drink, she just never cared for it mm-hmm. and I learned so much being around a normal person, how they deal, how they handle things, how they don't overreact to everything and mm-hmm. I mean, I get out of the shower one night. And at my peripheral, I see the toilet paper. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've never bought toilet paper. I bet she's getting a resentment. <laughs> <laughs> and so I go in there and I say, we need to talk. She's like, oh, okay, what, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, I've never bought toilet paper. And she looked at me like I was a man <laughs> on the moon or something. And I think I realized right then and there uh-huh. that we think different. We think way different than other people do. Yeah. And, and and it made me start looking at things to give me a different perspective again on looking at things, you know. Today, I realize that God has put these things in my life and, and it's incredible lessons. I, I thank the world of that lady. We're no longer together. Yeah. I haven't been for a long time, but she's a wonderful person. I mean, she's a excellent. We're good friends today. And uh, I mean... Her brother came and lived at my house after we'd split up for three months, cause his wife was going through chemo at MD Anderson. They're from Missouri, mm-hmm. but her brother's just like her. He's cooking dinner every night, fixing things around the house, naturally giving stuff back, and you don't ever hear him talk about stuff like it's just what they do. Yeah, for us, it's an effort for me to do that. Oh,
0: me too. I, I you know, I'm married. Uh, I'm married to a normie too, and. You know, she was raised in an alcoholic household. She knows all about it. When when we got married, I was still actively using and drinking for another year and a half before I stopped. But, you know, stuff that, that they just do, I see is something special that i'm doing and it's yeah. not it, yeah, it's, it's, it's not. just it's just what it's just what, it's what people normal
1: do people do every day yeah
0: absolutely and, and, absolutely. and
1: sometimes i, I like when people get into meetings say we're so lucky we got this stuff that nobody else has gotten i'm like no <laughs> they got it normally yeah, that's they... just their way of life you know <laughs> that's right that's i'm right. like no we're not special we're, we're pretty screwed up but you know there is hope.
0: <laughs> can you can you recall times during your sobriety that really really tested your resolve to stay sober to stay associated with AA?
1: Nine years sober, I was eating at a. I got. I've I've pretty much gone to meetings regularly every day. You know, pretty much the whole time, and 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 at night too for a lot of a lot of years. Uh, but I was eating at a restaurant that I eat at. I used to eat that daily at uh-huh. that time. I was sitting in there, nothing's wrong in my life, everything going good. And they served somebody a draft beer, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I wanted a draft beer. I mean the compulsion was on full force. And I really believe if I haven't been going to meetings like I had and doing the things I'd been doing, I think I'd have drank. There's not a doubt in my mind. Mm-hmm. And that afternoon, a friend of mine, Harvey, happened to come by my shop, and I told him instantly what had just happened. Mm-hmm. And then I went to a meeting that night and talked about it. And that really impacted me. It showed me, because there's a place in the book it talks about there come a time and a place, if you're not spiritually fit, you'll drink again. Mm-hmm. And that hit me. Thank God I had been going to meetings. But what it showed me, too, was... It doesn't matter how much time you got. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make me any more liable to not take to a drink than the man on the moon, you know. I mean, than the guy that just walked in the door. I'm just—I might be less like it for the fact that I am connected, but if I weren't connected, I've watched so many people get successful, get the 2.5 kids and a wife and yeah. white picket fence and— Oh, I don't need AA anymore. If you're an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, you're always going to need AA. Yeah, and
0: you and I are both that way. No doubt about it. And I'm a big believer in meetings, too. I go to, you know, as many as eight to nine meetings a week. Yeah, me too. Because I love it. Because it enriches (laughs) my life. Uh, uh, But I'm always concerned whenever I hear somebody saying, oh, it's not about the alcohol anymore. And I'm saying it is. It's always about the alcohol. because. Alcoholism is cunning, baffling, powerful, patient, and it will take what it can get. No doubt. It will take the littlest littlest thing and it'll grow that little seed into something gigantic. Yes, sir. And what happened for you that day in the hamburger shop. It's real easy for my ego to take a look at that and say, oh, man, why am I having that feeling at nine years? What's wrong with me? Yep,
1: I had that. I've had that period where I thought I wasn't doing enough or I wasn't feeling like Joe Blow over here that seems to have it
0: all together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Looking around the rooms and seeing guys. who have got Comparing. Yeah, yeah. my insides to their outsides yep. and not knowing, through all that and not knowing not knowing what to do I remember
1: early on. I don't remember what it was, but making some, si- some sort of mistake. It wasn't even anything major. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm just a failure. I can't, you know. And then living through that and realizing, well, perfect human beings make mistakes. That's right. Exactly. The, Nobody's exactly perfect.
0: No, nobody you know? is. And the fact that you're willing to come into a meeting and share it diffuses it and takes the, the negative energy out of it. It also helps another person.
1: That's where I first heard it was other people talking about it. And they're like, wow.
0: Exactly. And, and people need to see people both failing in sobriety and succeeding in sobriety both times. The difficulty is that you see a lot more people in meetings when they're failing at something than you do when they're succeeding. Because when I'm succeeding, my ego kind of steps in over my shoulder and says, wow, you're doing a pretty good job there, Howard. And I, I start losing perspective of why these good things are happening. And sooner or later I'm gonna tell myself it's because of me that they're happening. Yeah. And that may be the point at which I say, well, since life is going so great, I could probably dial back on meetings. I don't have to call that guy back. You know, I don't need a sponsee right now, et cetera. And, you know, you start, it's almost like you're circling the drain. My mind, the longer I'm sober,
1: the trickier it gets. Does it? it, it it's, it's got these little, because it knows the basics of not, you know, staying sober. But it, Richard Pryor said it in the 80s, the best I've ever heard of. He says, I've got a mind that thinks it can kill me and keep on living. And that, that is so true.
0: Right. And that I heard so another true. guy say, uh, I got a disease that wants to kill me and make it look like an accident. <laughs> yeah. True. So that happened at nine years. W- were there a few other times that the, 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 the disease kind of stepped in and started to pull you, pull at you, or have you always stayed right in the middle?
1: No, I, I, I think that, well, even before then I was right in the middle, but I, I think the years of being around, I've. I find that I can get away with less. Like the
0: road gets narrower? No,
1: no doubt. The road gets narrower. I can't keep going and having these relationships out of self-serving motives and and I don't know how to put it nicely, but hurting other people. Still being that tornado in the path of of whoever gets in my way. I've really got to look at that. And I've really got to look at... At little things like giving back, to, and like you say, giving back might be saying hi to somebody. Hi, Joe. Hi, Howard or yeah, somebody. You yeah. know? God puts it right in front of me what I need to do. And if I don't get it the first few hints, he'll drop kick my ass where I can't help but well, get it. Well,
0: and if there was ever a, an, an individual in the program who I know who embodies that being in the center by being in a meeting every day, you're one of those people, man, yeah. because you and you have a tendency to draw people in, which is really I think when you're in the center of anything, you tend to draw people in. And as people start to pull off center, I've seen you get right in their face and say what needs to be said to pull them back yeah. in. And, and, I, and I greatly admire that about you uh, and the fact that you share the good times, you share the bad times. Um, also, uh, and I I don't think I've ever told you this, but I really respect the times when you pass. I don't know why that is, but it just makes me think the times I've said I need to pass. It's either because I'm acknowledging that there's my ego at work wanting to share something or I'm feeling sorry for myself that day or for whatever other reason. But sometimes I don't really need to talk. Than ever. Do you get, I, I felt exactly Have what you? you just
1: talked about, yeah. and that's sometimes I'm like I'm talking too much. I need to shut up for my ego. I'm yeah, just, uh,
0: yeah. Ego doesn't like us to shut up oh, though, does no. it? Oh
1: God, it wants wants a pat on the back, wants a billboard. I'll, I'm my racing the accomplishments I've had. It's like I see somebody else come in at brand new, and they get these TV deals and all this stuff, and I'm like, well, what about me? Well, I, r- I realized that. <laughs> It's probably not good for me. Yeah. It's probably good I don't get something like that because I start, I'm I'm really afraid. I'm scared of my ego. Yeah. afraid of, and I think that's a healthy fear. One one of the guys I really looked up to in this program, we were running buddies early on and Uh still good friends today. He's got like 42 years. He's probably the most humble guy I've ever met. Uh Uh-huh. Never really took credit for anything. Me and him chaired a meeting in N.A. for 18 years, a Saturday night meeting. Uh-huh. And I, I would watch stuff that he would do and just how humble he is. And I'm like, I wasn't. Don't get me wrong. But he was. And I've learned a lot. And there's a lot of things I like about that. Yeah. And, and stuff like like when you're talking about the sharing, he would tell me, he says, well, what really happened is is a lot more funnier than what you can make up anyway. And I got to thinking, I'm like, you know, he's right, because in these rooms we see through everybody's BS. You know, <laughs> it's it's obvious we've all said it before. That's right. So the truth always is. More, it's more helpful. Yeah, it's more entertaining. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's all all around just a better deal. Why not just talk with whatever God tells me? And when I say something in meetings, that somebody says that they like what I said, I look. I try to remember to look up, and say thank you, God, for using me as a vessel.
0: Exactly, uh, exactly. I, if
1: I start taking credit for it, I'm in trouble.
0: Yeah, that's a message that I got loud and clear from. My True. sponsor telling me that I learned that somewhere. It didn't just come to yeah, me. Exactly. And it takes practicing it to keep that. Yes. That gratitude. I've seen you express it a lot over the years, yes. and I think you're a real um, you're a real beacon for this program I to a lot of people it. who come in and see you. I
1: appreciate God making me a beacon. It's what I appreciate. Yeah,
0: and I'm I'm thankful for God putting us together as brothers in this program you're a beautiful man i love yeah. you and you've been a, a terrific it. influence in my life yeah. for a long time and you're an old timer
1: the problem with being an old timer? what's As you get old
0: <laughs> 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 i didn't realize that when i wanted that
1: <laughs> as long as you're alive to get sober that's what's important absolutely it doesn't matter
0: when Well, this has been a real treat, Ro. Thanks a million for doing this. Thank you for doing
1: these podcasts. I think they're great. I hope a lot of people get stuff out of them.
0: I hope so, too. And I think especially yours has been particularly meaningful for me. I
1: appreciate that.
0: Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Ro Y., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it and leave a review for the show on your podcast app? That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to any or all of my other interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and other podcast providers or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.